Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, thanks for joining us for Mortification of Spin today. My name is Todd Pruitt, and I'm joined, as always, by Amy Bird and Carl Truman. And today we are delighted to welcome back as a returning guest. We don't have many returning guests here, but Michael Allen has chosen to enter the fray again and further risk his reputation by hanging out with us for a little bit. Uh, Michael Allen is the John Dyer Trimble Professor of Systematic Theology and the Academic Dean at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, as well as the author of some really wonderful books, co-author and editor of some wonderful books. And Michael, we are delighted to have you on with us today. Thanks for joining us. Hey, I'm delighted to make it to round two and be back with y'all. <laughs> That's right. Well, listen, I'm going to kick it over to Amy because Amy noticed this well before I did, and it sounded like a, a really exciting opportunity. And so, Amy, tell us what's going on and what we want to talk with Michael about today. Yeah, I wanted to get Mike on the show because he was sharing with me that he and Scott Swain, another one that we've had on the show, we need to have him back maybe, yeah. but they are working with RTS Orlando and they're going to be the directors of what's going to be called the Paideia Center for Theological Discipleship. And so this is like non-formal educational opportunities for practicing Reformed Catholicity, which, you know, they both co-wrote mm -hmm. the book Reformed Catholicity. So I thought, let's have Mike on the show. Let's, let's hear what this is all about. And I want to hear about the website that they're launching. So, um, Mike, I'm, I'm really interested in this. And I, just for our listeners, I think maybe we should just start off by like defining that word, because it's probably one that a lot of people have never heard before. Like, why did you decide to call it the Paideia Center for Theological yeah. Discipleship? Yeah, that's a great place to start, Amy. Uh, Paideia is a word that appears in biblical and extra-biblical Greek literature, and it is a word that even in the New Testament speaks of instruction and wisdom, training and discipline for wisdom and maturity. So it appears in texts like Hebrews 12, where it talks repeatedly, both in noun and verbal form, of how the father wants to train up the son in the discipline of maturity, of, of adulthood, of completeness and wholeness. In 2 Timothy 3.16, that famous passage speaking about all of Scripture that's God-breathed and given to us, it's there to equip us in the paideia of righteousness, the instruction and the training of being a just person, a righteous man or woman. And uh, so it's a, a rich term that through the centuries, Christians, like others, have taken up to speak of the kind of wise maturity that we are called to. And then in Christ, we're given grace for, um, and in the church that we're to seek to commend and cultivate. So, what made you decide to have this center be more of a non-formal means of education? Yeah, well, thankfully, we're in a time where the formal avenues of education are more diverse than perhaps ever before. There are more on-ramps to theological education of a formal sort, particularly in higher or other avenues, seminary, college, etc. We were thinking, though, that there are so many people who either don't have opportunity mm -hmm. to go to Bible college, college, or seminary, or folks who've gone through that and had a, a bad experience 
that they feel hasn't served them well theologically, or folks who had a good experience, Mm. but now they feel like something of a lone ranger and they don't have the kind of vibrant intellectual and theological community to sustain and to further shape them. And so finding some sort of non-formal mechanism for getting those folks together, equipping them, providing uh, different leaders in their various cities and nationally to focus their study on certain texts and key topics, we thought that was a worthwhile thing for hopefully helping to deepen that kind of wise judgment that we think churches increasingly need. Mm -hmm. That sounds exciting. Michael, um, if you could just kind of briefly explain your thoughts on the connection or the relationship between theology and discipleship. Yeah, I think one thing that is often emphasized, of course, is Paul's line in Romans 12, that giving ourselves over as a spiritual act of worship, surrendering all that we are into God and praise, that that demands not just keeping the world from conforming us to its ways, but also that it demands that we be renewed, that the status quo isn't acceptable, that we need to be transformed. And the mind is crucial to that. It's not the totality of that, but it does play an ingredient essential role. And so learning wisdom and mature judgment is absolutely crucial to being the kind of man or woman who's capable of acting in Christian ways. You know, think about the challenging issues of life. So many of the big decisions we make are matters where there's not a straightforward verse that says, do this or don't do that. It's a matter of judgment. It's a matter of discernment. And we think that oftentimes, particularly modern Christians in the evangelical and sometimes reformed world, We haven't commended that calling to discernment Mm -hmm. and that equipping of the saints to be able to make biblical judgments on their own. There'd be some differences, of course, in terms of some of the specific ways in which virtues are defined and, of course, precisely how we think grace actually transforms. But the basic idea that you want folks who don't just happen to make the right decision here or do the right thing there, but who are marked by certain characteristics, certain habits character trait qualities that we might call fruit of the spirit, we might call uh, spiritual gifts and blessings described in Galatians 5 or in the Beatitudes of Matthew 5. But the notion that this is the way in which the gospel transforms the whole self uh, bit by bit, incrementally by the Spirit's grace. And so we are seeking to pursue that kind of holistic discipleship by reflecting deeply on God's word. And by believing that a number of the virtues are ones that, by and large, our culture and our day and age are not terribly helpful with regard to. And so we want to listen to some saints of years past who perhaps exemplified certain virtues and grace-filled habits that are not as common today. So we want to be challenged by their witness to learn from their successes and their struggles hopefully to understand God's word better, to understand the ways that it is meant to transform us in every facet of life and the way in which it might provide a guide to direct and to call us to more faithful Christian judgment and more mature wisdom as we go about life. Michael, who, in terms of of individuals or or groups or, or particular generations in the past, do you believe have done a particularly good job of that? Yeah. And, you know, in different settings, I think we could point to a number of folks in many ways, uh, you know, there's so much to appreciate about much that went on during the, the Puritan movement. 
and ways in which a, a biblical culture was operative in a variety of ways, seeking to shape what it would mean to surrender every area of life of oneself and one's society, of one's worship and one's work uh, unto God. And you don't have to agree with every particular decision, and they didn't amongst themselves either, but you can appreciate right. the fact that there's, there's a robust conversation and a desire for wholehearted devotion to God. You could look, of course, to much earlier figures, say in the late patristic period, where in a variety of settings, uh, various ministries exemplified that kind of really rich and deep catechesis, the kind of formation of Christian faithfulness, particularly in a pagan environment where oftentimes there was a, a starker difference and uh, you couldn't take things for granted as we often sometimes do, particularly in previously Christian majority contexts where it's too easy to assume that people know what you're talking about uh, when you describe biblical ethics or Christian faithfulness. Um, and so we've got remarkable witnesses from a host of patristic teachers as well. I mean, ranging from, uh, you know, folks in the second century to later folks like Chrysostom or Basel. So how, you know, what's your plan? How do you plan on helping the people you're reaching out to, to learn this Christian wisdom by, you know, gleaning from these historical best interpreters of Holy Scripture? And how do you plan on reaching us practically? I know you, you know, on a website and conferences, like, what is it that you have in the works? Yeah, so there's going to be three different ways in which various programs will be there for folks to participate in. The first will be that in a number of cities, we're going to start in probably seven cities this year, uh, as well as an online group, where each city will have a local leader who will guide monthly discussion groups as they work through a, a common text of classical Christian literature. So in the fall of 2018, we'll read Gregory Nazianzus's Orations on God and Christ. Mm -hmm as we look at the doctrine of God. In spring of 19, we'll read Luther's large catechism and his annotations as we reflect further on a Protestant account of the doctrine of God and how it shapes all of our thought about the Christian life. And so those reading groups will be happening. Uh, there'll be smaller discussion-based groups. They're not a lecture, nor are they a freewheeling kind of what do you think about X, Y, or Z. They're, they're meant to be a focused discussion of a classic text as it prompts us to think about really significant issues from a Christian and a biblical framework. And we're incredibly excited. We've got great leaders to lead in a variety of different cities. The second thing we'll be doing is that in January, we'll host a, a conference over the course of two days here on the campus of RTS Orlando. And the conference will focus on the same theme for the whole year as is being addressed in the reading groups. In this first year, it'll be the doctrine of God again. And we'll have a, a number of speakers who can bring different expertise to that subject. And so this first year, we'll have our president here, Scott Swain, giving a, a biblical exegetical account of the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, another colleague, Blair Smith, who's done work on late patristic doctrine of God, will be speaking about some fourth and fifth century uh, wisdom for us regarding God. Uh, Carl will be speaking from a more Protestant reformational perspective of how Protestants have thought about the Catholic doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, so there'll be a number of, of excellent presentations, but unlike a lot of conferences, this one's designed to be much more participatory. 
So there'll be opportunities where the speakers or presenters will be a panel to field questions and discuss with the group. There'll be opportunities where the various city reading groups will be able to meet here on campus together as well and discuss the presentations they're hearing. Uh, All the meals will be here on campus so folks can mix and mingle and they're not scattered. And then we'll be interspersing the days with morning, noon, and evening prayer so that hopefully it more than just an intellectual experience. It's a a bit of a retreat as well. So that'll be happening every January. And we're excited about that. And then occasionally we'll have other events. That'll be sort of the third category where there will be uh, lectures or presentations or panels uh, that occur either here in Orlando or in other cities where we've got a presence. So this July, we'll have our, our first event with Liam Gallagher, and he'll be speaking about Recovering the Song of Songs uh, as a Christian text about God and about Christ. And I'm excited for that. We'll have similar events here on campus and elsewhere from time to time. That's really exciting. And what about your website? So, yeah, the website, it will be up here, hopefully, by the time this airs. And it's not meant to deliver a lot of content. It's meant to connect people to ways that they can participate. You can register for the reading groups. If they're in your city, you can do that. We'll ship you your book and tell you the dates and places and the leaders. You can register for the conference there. So it's sort of a one-stop shop. And you'll be able to see that. It's www.paideacenter.com. And should Paideia be mysterious to you, it's spelled P-A-I-D-E-I-A. So paideacenter.com. And that's a a very simple place where you can see a bit more about the details of the reading groups, where they are, the conference, when it is, what the schedule will look like, and so forth. We'll also have an online reading group. And uh, I'm excited Derek Rishmaui's agreed to lead that discussion. It'll allow folks who don't happen to be in one of the cities where at least in year one, we've got a group. So folks who are interested elsewhere or who just can't make the dates in the cities where we do have groups, they can participate in that online group. That's just, this sounds like such a great way to incorporate this kind of non-formal opportunity to learn, mm-hmm. especially practicing Reformed Catholicity and doing that. I mean, have you, I know, I, I'm asking this knowing that you're going to say yes, but you know, what is the need that you have seen for us to recover more of a Reformed Catholicity? Yeah, it's been really interesting, particularly as Scott Swain and I have written and spoken about this and observed others doing that. I mean, when we wrote Reform Catholicity, in the introduction, we noted that we weren't calling for some new approach to theology that wasn't being done, but that actually there are a bunch of different movements to try and learn from the past. Some are closer to home than others. Some are a little wilder than others, but there's a lot of interest in that. And we found since we wrote the book and since others have been written as well, that there's a lot of interest, but interest doesn't immediately translate into either competence in doing that or confidence that you can do that. And so those are really the two objectives we'd like to meet. We'd like pastors and elders and Bible study teachers and really just interested laymen and laywomen who want something a bit more, want something a bit more participatory than your normal Bible conference, and who really want to be able to read Augustine or Calvin or Owen or uh, Basel on their own, but don't feel like they could and really just lack that kind of confidence. And we're hoping this will provide a group. It will provide some 
sort of gentle accountability and encouragement. It will provide some instruction with a, a gifted leader in each city who can help guide discussion and enhance the reading experience so that eventually over time as folks participate through a cycle or two of this, They'll have the ability to confidently go and read primary sources for themselves. They'll have the kind of mature judgment that they can bring to their own discipleship, the witness of those who've gone before us and be able to critically and charitably interact with that. And that they'll have a rich community of meeting Christians from around the country and the globe even, who will come to a reading group in your city or to the the annual conference here, and that that'll be an encouragement. There'll be friendships formed there. And that's one of the great things we've observed in the last few years, just some rich friendships that have spun out of this kind of common conversation about how wisdom today could be resourced by the riches of the past. Okay. Uh, My wife is a Scot by birth and by conviction. So I'm (laughs) going to ask her question now. How much does it cost? Yeah. (laughs) Way to speak up for the commoner. Um, <laughs> so, uh, the conference is going to be $99. It's inclusive of all your food and so forth. Well, um, Two-day conference. So, we've tried to make sure that it's a good bit less than a lot of other such. And uh, the reading groups are going to cost $20, which covers your book as well as incidentals. So, we've tried to keep costs wow. down. Uh, as much as possible, we we do ask the reading groups that people register simply because we cap them so that it actually is a discussion group. We don't want it to become a larger group where it's unwieldy and where folks can't participate. So you do have to register and, and commit to coming. You know, our goal is to make it as accessible as possible for folks out of town, particularly thinking about the conference. We have the blessed benefit, thanks to Mickey himself. Uh, to know that there are accommodations galore around the area, everything from Airbnb of all sorts to every sort of hotel establishment, uh, every every sort of class or standard and cost level. So there are lots of options for making it as cheap as imaginable to get here. And it's it's intentionally designed such that the conference in January will be of added benefit. So for instance, Carl will be here the three and a half days prior this year, and he'll be teaching a course based on his current research. And so we're imagining some students, particularly RTS students from across the institution might come for that class and then stay for the conference. That's a lot of socializing for Carl to do. That's right. Exactly. (laughs) Carl has promised He's promised to do a pre-conference <laughs> guided <laughs> tour of Epcot. That would be the worst tour guy. Try and catch it on video. Yeah, and and then we've also scheduled the conference on Thursday and Friday. So if folks want to come in, they can then make an extended weekend out of it. And you can the beach is an hour away, Disney's an hour away. You can you can blend. I just like the idea of being Florida in January. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really. Amen. It, it is the time of year you want to be here. That's right. No doubt. Mm-hmm. Well, that's exciting. I think it is a great opportunity. And just one of the things that went through my mind as you were talking about just the whole mission and the purpose of, of the Paideia Center, last several years, I've, I've reread the confessions a couple of times. And, and I, I texted Carl and Amy just the other day. Mm. Um, I, I was going back through books seven and eight and just how he was able to think so deeply uh, Christianly about the philosophies of the day. And of course, in that culture, they were so steeped in, in various pagan philosophies, but how he was able to distinguish what was helpful from what was not helpful, how he talked about 
Platonism, even though he had very fundamental disagreements with things, but, but how Platonism helped give him the intellectual tools to accept biblical Christianity and a biblical understanding of reality versus the other philosophies and just the way that he was able to collate that information in his mind and to walk through it in a way that was redemptive was a real challenge to me. And that's, that's been going through my mind as you've been sharing about this center, how we as Christians are able to think Christianly about the world that we're immersed in. Yeah. And I, I think if we're honest, a lot of our circles, you know, we sometimes make fun of uh, sort of celebrity Christianity, but even where you don't have the huge names and the big lights, how much of our world can drift to the notion where instead of ministering the word of God to equip the saints so that they're capable of discernment, uh, the pastor basically is the guru who mm-hmm. tells them how they ought to do everything, or they expect the pastor to do that. Right. And rather than equipping them and guiding them to be mature, uh, to grow in wisdom, to be capable of discernment, there's this notion that somehow they simply need to be told, do X, Y, and Z. Um, and, you know, either they buy into that or they chafe against it. And I, I think the Bible describes a, a calling to meditate on God's word, to be formed in the life of the church, to be held accountable by appropriate authority structures, um, but actually to holistic discipleship and to personal discernment that you're accountable before God. And so we want to equip people. We believe that that's a great need of the church in this day. We're, we're a rather immature church and we're in times that demand a good bit more backbone and a, a greater wisdom. That's good. That's good. But it's been great fun having Michael Allen back on the show, and particularly interesting to hear about his new project, uh, the Paideia Center, which, as you've just heard, is committed to cultivating conversations about classical orthodox theology. And we're delighted to say that if you go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, you can enter for a chance to win a free registration for one of the Paideia Center reading groups. A registration that is good if you're in one of the cities where the the real life reading groups are taking place, or if you're living in the middle of nowhere, as I will be in a couple of weeks' time, uh, you have the chance to join the online discussion group led by the wonderful Derek Rishmawi. So please do go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, enter for a chance to win those. Remember that we are a listener-supported outfit, and therefore, if you feel led to make a donation, please do. In the meantime, we look forward to being with you again next week. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about J.I. Packer's Knowing God had a huge impact on me. And he really exploded a lot of the categories that I had for thinking about God. He blew up the box, I guess, that I had placed God in. He presented a much bigger God, a sovereign and almighty God. And and so the natural outgrowth of that was to aspire to have a worship that was more reverent and God-focused 
than what I was accustomed to in the churches that I grew up in. That interview is next time. Join us then. Well, I don't think we're hopeless. Y you mean it? Yes, sir.